0: pros when the job demands more of the supplies you use most start with lowes because at lowes we stock the right quantities you need for any size job and at everyday savings like up to 30 percent off drywall drywall accessories and insulation every day when you buy in bulk order at Lowe'sForPros.com and we'll have your order ready for pickup with dedicated pro loaders to get you loaded up and back to the job site faster for your next job and the next do it right for less start with lowes
1: This is the Gator Nation Football
2: Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts Alan Williams and James DiVergilio.
0: This place is an insane asylum in this world! Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average
1: stiffs. Welcome, podcast fans, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. My name is Alan Williams. I'm right here alongside... As always, my partner in crime here, James DiVergilio. It's post SEC championship edition. We have a lot of thoughts on the game moving forward, all those things. But first, we wanted to check in on what it was like uh, at the game itself, what the atmosphere was, and all that. So we're going to make a little call here. Let's welcome to the show
2: my brother, David DiVergilio. We decided that it would be a good idea to get sort of an inside scoop from someone who was at the game in the Georgia Dome. I think a lot of the feel. Hi, it's Jamie. Progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it was pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Feelings about the game are probably pretty similar, whether you were there or whether you were not there. But since I had uh, let my brother purchase my tickets when I bowed out on the Treon cot, we thought, "Eh, you know, great idea. Let's get his thoughts. Let's see what he's thinking. So so Dave, joining us from Atlanta, uh, good to have you.
0: Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, it's been really a a joy to listen to the podcast each week. Y'all are doing a great job. (laughs)
2: <laughs> as as my brother, I expect you to give me such a plug, and I, I appreciate yeah. that. Uh, tell yeah. me what was unbiased. the yeah what was unbiased, completely unbiased, of course. What was the atmosphere like in the Georgia Dome before the game, during the game, and then kind of after the game? What was just give me the little storyline of what that was like?
0: Yeah, so you know, I know at least for me, my perspective. You know, with friends coming in town, you know, I was joking with them. I said, let's have a lot of fun Friday night and Saturday night until about four fifteen. So I feel like similarly walking into the stadium and even, you know, just my perspective as a Gator fan was if there's anything worth cheering for, you know, I was all in for the pregame fanfare, everything, you know, getting out all my cheering at that point because I was not expecting to have much to cheer for beyond, you know, the first quarter. Um, So I feel like especially when Antonio Callaway, you know, the defense was, was standing up great, obviously, like they always do. And that sack fumble, I think, that Bullard had really kind of made Gator fans say, okay, you know, this isn't going to be over in the first quarter. I mean, that was my criteria was, you know, was Derrick Henry just going to run right through us? You know, were we going to start out slow like we did against LSU? Because obviously the game would have been over. But I think that sack fumble, and then obviously, you know, even the, that one drive we had, the blocked field goal was a bummer. But really the Antonio Callaway punt return, um, if most Gator fans were thinking like me, You know, we were just cheering as much as we could because we knew that, you know, we didn't have a chance. And so as soon as Callaway returned that punt, um, you know, it really was nuts in there. Like, it was, that was really fun. But at the same time, I still had this perspective of, we're not going to win. We can't move the ball. And yet I think, you know, that was a really, uh, really fun play. Um, So there was some entertainment value there. But I know that for me, it was like, okay, I still didn't expect anything from us.
2: What was the percentage of Bama fans? And for those of you that don't know, Alabama, this game used to be in Birmingham, and so they, they had the right to buy the tickets to the SEC title game first. So in any given year, most Bama fans hold SEC championship tickets, so they have sort of a built-in majority. But was it a sort of typical 75 80% Bama crowd?
0: Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, if I think back to 2008 and 2009, Uh, That felt like even then, you know, even though obviously the Gators were the the favorite in those games or, you know, it felt like it was at least 60-40. This time it was even more so. I felt like it was a pretty rowdy Gator crowd. Um, It didn't seem terrible, but yeah, it was at least 70-30, no doubt.
1: So yeah, did you feel like the energy of the Gator fans kind of got sucked out of the building somewhere in the second half and then people kind of, what was it like for people walking out of the game? Were they pretty disappointed or how did people feel?
0: You know, that's a good question. Um, I think definitely, you know, third quarter, 12 to seven, I, I think we all were kind of like, okay, we're in this game. You know, this wasn't surprise. Um But, you know, getting choked out, that's what I kept saying to all the fans around me. I was like, we're, they're just going to choke us out. You know, we can't do any, anything on offense. And so, you know, one of the things that did happen, which was interesting, is, you know, they didn't, they weren't able to go tackle on a few touchdowns at the end. And, you know, Treon was throwing up the ball to CJ Wharton. I feel like it actually took some of the wind out of the sails of the Bama fan. I still feel like the Gator fans were kind of not as engaged at that point. But I think it's what everyone expected. I don't, I don't know that there was disappointment. I know for me, at least, it definitely wasn't disappointment. It was two expectations.
1: Now, you were down there on row two. Anything that you noticed uh, being that close to the field?
0: You know, it was it was interesting. Uh, it's always fun being close to the field there, but it's hard to see the game in a lot of ways. I, and uh, to be honest, I was watching the Jumbotron a lot because, you know, depth perception is just really difficult. Um, so I feel like it was actually in some ways harder. I know Eric, one of my friends, Eric, was up on a third level and he said, you know, he appreciates that perspective because you can kind of see things going on game wise.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I made those same comments at LSU when I got to watch Trian, and I think that's why I confirmed my opinion there, is you could see what we were running and what was there. So yep. given that you couldn't see a lot of the play developments or things that were that were happening of that nature, were you close enough to get an idea of what the team body language was like, even maybe walking out of the game? was it Was it neutral? Was it negative? Was it sort of just flat?
0: You know, I feel like one of the things that, You know, and and being there probably didn't necessarily help my perspective, but, you know, everyone playing up, hey, this is the foundational experience for the team. And I think the way the fourth quarter went, at least I know David Crab and I, we were both pretty pleased that Henry didn't get to walk in a couple more times like Cook did in the Florida State game. And we kind of felt like the defense really played with a lot of pride. And I think that was a source of saying, hey, our guys fought hard, even though our quarterback, campers us in a tremendous way um, at least for me and walking out of there because i because i wanted to leave after the third quarter you know i wanted to leave right after we are the boys because i think that at that point it was 29 to 7 and you know they were i just assumed they're gonna tack on a couple touchdowns and so the fourth quarter is actually pleasant for me because you know we were able to stop uh, henry a little bit there and we were able to get that lucky touchdown and so um you know i i think it felt like you know, especially when McAlwain was spinning it, that hey, this was a foundational opportunity and game and experience and, you know, we fought hard.
1: All right. Last question here, David. What are your overall feelings moving into the off season? You're usually a pretty optimistic fan. How are you feeling heading into the spring and summer?
0: I'm feeling pretty good. I think there's an aspect of some of the under I guess they're upper class and not underclass. The guys that could declare, I'm definitely looking to watch for that on the defensive side of the ball. You know, if if McAllister and it's actually really good that Jarek Davis is coming back. That's exciting. Um, but even different things on the defensive side of the ball because it's been such a premium to have this spectacular of a defense. And that's one of my questions: is is McIlwain going to be able to have a defense like this ever again? You know, and did we kind of waste it as you know James talks about a lot with Will Greer situation? You know, you it's not it's hard to not think about the what ifs. But you know, I definitely think if we're able to land Jacob Eason or even if you have Luke Del Rio in there next year, anybody but Treon, um, we should have a decent defense next year, and hopefully the offensive line just progresses. We've got weapons around them. and So, yeah, I am pretty optimistic. The only thing for me is that Tennessee game early. That's going to be a huge game at Tennessee. And thinking about, you know, if we lose that, they have a pretty soft schedule. So it's definitely not a given to get back to Atlanta. But I, I'm, I'm definitely excited about the future and – I think if we get at least an average quarterback in there, we should have a good enough defense again next year to to be back in Atlanta, hopefully.
1: All right, Dave, thanks for the time. Really appreciate you calling in, and we'll talk to you soon.
2: Yeah, thanks, guys. So bringing us back now to our thoughts on the game, Alan, as my brother said, it's really what we expected as Gator fans. Maybe the score was a little bit better than we expected as Gator fans, but the way that the game went down, the way that it was played – I think was exactly how we thought it would be at the end of last week when we were talking about it together.
1: Yeah. After the FSU game, I didn't have much hope that we'd be able to mount any kind of game. Now obviously, we scored some points in some unexpected ways and it was a little closer at the beginning than maybe some people thought. I know you, uh, thought there'd be that kind of boa constrictor, you know, they continue to close ranks on us. And really after, you know, the first or second quarter, or so, uh, there wasn't much hope. Um, so yeah, it really is what we expected, which is kind of disappointing, but I don't think I was, you know, I didn't leave the game supremely upset because that's what I thought was going to happen.
2: Yeah, and that's the way I, that's that's certainly the way I think most Gator fans feel. I think the thing that, that's still not sitting well with me, and we watched the game together here in Gainesville, it was certainly wasn't sitting well with me on Saturday. It hasn't really been been great for me since Will went down, but I think I hit my peak level of frustration with with coach Max's decision to play Treon in this game. It had been building. I was obviously very frustrated. I've talked about it countless times, but I found myself in that game to be really frustrated that there was not another quarterback taking any snaps. Just really frustrated because we could have beaten that Alabama team with maybe even a slightly below average quarterback. We really could have. And I felt like strategically he made an error. That doesn't mean that Grady and or Jacob Guy Really Jacob Guy, the guy that I've sort of championed without ever seeing him play, aside from the high school film. He could have come in and thrown 10 picks, but we owed it to ourselves to see that. Uh, we knew what Tram was going to give us. We called this before the LSU game, and it really just kind of drove, drove me a little mad watching that game to think that he kept marching a guy out there who was just awful, so awful in fact that the announcers didn't know what to say. If you read articles from the national media on the game, they don't even have words to really describe Treon's performance. A lot of people are seeing him play for the first time. He had 37%, I think, was his completion rate. 9 of 24. uh, One pass is an essential Hail Mary that we complete. So I'm going to place some blame on Mac for this one. I'm going to place a lot of blame on him for this. I think we went into this game with uh, a quarterback that couldn't win the game. It was incapable of winning the game, and we didn't try anything else. We didn't reek of any sort of desperation that I think everyone thought we were in desperation mode, and we played like we were just the better team, which is great for the future, but not for this game. And so I just found myself very frustrated with that take on it.
1: Yeah, I think we talked last week about this potentially being a kitchen sink kind of game, where we just pull out all the stops, do a bunch of crazy trick plays. We didn't really do anything that was unusual. And, man, our offense ground to a halt. I, I don't have the stats in front of me, but you know, I think we had around 80-something yards in the first quarter. I think we still had 80 yards. We had maybe negative one yard over the second and third quarter. I I don't ever remember that kind of ineptitude in an offense. I mean, that was peak ineptitude, if I can say that, or valley ineptitude, whatever. Uh, And, yeah, I I, I guess there was no way for anything else to happen as long as Treon was going to be in the game. Is there any kind of even possible reason why he was in there? Is there maybe some kind of ulterior motive you think McIlwain might have had in keeping him in there? Well, behind, behind the scenes and off the air, we've discussed
2: this for a while now. And there's been sort of a subtle, I don't even want to say it's a rumor, just a subtle thought that I guess we'll give a little legs to now about maybe why McIlwain would, would continue to play Treon and protect him given his historically bad play. And the thought is this. So his brother was the head coach at Booker T during Treon's run there. His brother is now the running back coach at FIU. His dad is a running backs coach at Miami. And his brother, who played for LSU, is an NFL cornerback. And so I think there was some thought that McIlwain was trying to keep the South Florida pipeline really open. The Harris family is literally legendary in that area. They have a tremendous amount of football contacts. And the thought would go like this. Why would you keep playing Trayon if you can't win? Well, if Mac thinks the other two quarterbacks can't really win either, play the guy that you think gives you a long term win in recruiting. Now that's a there's some validity to that sort of methodology when you think of how you're thinking about building your program. However, I'm I'm willing to go on the record now saying that I think Mac failed the team and how he handled the situation, especially coming into this Alabama game. I would have done the move earlier, but like we said, to put a little bow on this one. Something needed to be done at the quarterback position. We needed to have anyone else in that game. We needed to run trick plays. We needed to play with desperation. We did none of that. And I think that's a gap we're seeing in McIlwain's maybe armor right now. He's got a ton of ego like most great coaches do. I don't think he's ever dealt with the situation that he had with a guy like Treon. And I'm not sure he reacted optimally. In fact, I'm sure he did not react optimally to this as a a strategist overall. Um, I don't think it's going to happen in the future, and we're going to talk about that. But certainly... Very frustrating and capped off by Treon's comments after the game, which maybe some of you have heard, maybe some of you haven't. But they asked Treon after the game about Alabama's defense. And he said, quote, Alabama isn't the best defense we played. They're not hard to figure out. The scheme they run just works well for those guys. And then one asked, well, who is the best defense that you faced? He says, LSU. They have great corners, safeties, and defensive linemen. Alabama does not have the defensive backs like LSU does. Now, that comment is is utterly ridiculous. We got seven first downs in the game against Alabama. Seven first downs. Treon, you know, one out of three passes was complete against their defense. So I'm not exactly sure what planet he's living on or how he thinks that they were, quote, easy to figure out. Um, but it just illustrates the frustration, I think, Gator fans have. We've had an offense that has not ranked in the top 70 top 70 since 2010 11 12 13 14 now this year 15 we have been worse than 70th as the florida gators and there's just a lot of frustration so so yes that's where we are that's the state of where we're at now and unfortunately i'm confident he's going to march treon right back out there for our bowl game which is just (laughs) so maddening to me and the treon cot will continue because i can't i just can't deal with it (laughs) so let's switch let's just switch off that side of the ball I've said enough for that probably for 10 lifetimes. Um, let's talk about just an incredible bright spot all year long and, and, a, and a, a unit that did a great job in the game, which would be our defense.
1: Yeah, I love the play of these guys. They didn't quit. You know, I think it would be easy to just kind of pack it in and be like, well, you know, we're not going to win this game. We don't have the offense. They played their tails off the whole game. And they got worn down a little bit at the end, just like in the FSU game because they were on the field for so long. The time of possession was crazy in favor of Alabama. I don't think any kind of defense is going to be able to hold up to that. But, you know, our linebackers play great. Morrison and Davis continue to improve. You know, I gave them a, a kind of you know high grade at the beginning of the or middle of the year because I thought they had played well with what we were asking them to do. But those guys have gotten better and better each week. These defensive line played well despite missing a bunch of guys. You know, touch and go in the secondary on some things. Uh, we'll get to that. But I love that these guys put forth that kind of effort. And really, a stellar season by them. The reason that we are uh, ten and two, or now ten and three, is the fact that those guys um, played their tails off week in week out, played with a, at a really high level at almost
2: every spot on the field. Yeah, I thought the defensive line was nothing short of majestic in this game. It was it was their their crowning moment this year, and they've had many good moments, but they were utterly dominant in this game. Uh, Henry, although he had a lot of yards was for most of the game below 40 yards a carry, which is really phenomenal. I mean, if you watch yeah. what he had been doing, he had been at seven, eight, nine a carry in these other games. Well, and they gave we him had, 45 carries yeah. to get
1: to his 180 yards. Yeah, and
2: so we had really, really held him. And, and and the one weak spot, what we mentioned all year long, has been has been really the play of our safeties, uh, occasionally nickel Nickelback. But really, Marcus May, again, shows up on the wrong side of the stat sheet. The guy's a great run-stapper, but both of the touchdowns they scored were, were Bad, bad football passes by Coker. I mean, he finished with two hundred and something yards. He really should have had a hundred, and and Marcus May should have had maybe two picks or at least two pass breakups. And he's on on one of them, he gets beat as the as the single high safety where Vern then misjudges the ball. Vern could have made a play, but Vern's correctly underneath that deep ball over the middle. Uh, Marcus May is is just nowhere to be found. And the last it, one, yeah. he runs six yards past it on a wobbling duck again as the safety. So. We knew that was the case. Uh, I really hope that we can shore that up next year. Uh, Neil just got better every game. I mean, Neil was, was solid. I think teams yeah. intentionally knew that they needed to attack Marcus May, and they were creating formations to do it. And Bama certainly did it. And even then, the passes were poor. But, you know, that hurt us. Outside of Marcus May, it was hard to even look at a spot on defense that wasn't really rather outstanding in that game. We got tons of pressure. Uh, we did it without having McAllister. The cornerbacks played really solidly, you know, for the most part. Neil played a heck of a football game. Uh, The tackling was really solid. Henry did not get a lot of yards after contact. I mean, just a really all-around wonderful performance. And like you said, they were on the field for 27 more minutes. 27 more minutes than Bama's defense, which is a complete and utter mind blow. So hats off to them. Jeff Collins, amazing first year as the Gator defensive coordinator, one of the best defenses we've had points allowed wise in the history of Gator football. And now we'll see if he can keep it going by recruiting his own guys, but certainly a tremendous, tremendous bright spot. Yeah. Um,
1: Good job by the coaching staff of keeping those guys playing with a lot of energy and emotion. That's not easy to do when one side of the ball is just failing completely. You know, it's I know that I would get frustrated and, you know, I'm not nearly as invested as they are. So I think that speaks to the integrity of those guys, but also to the coaching staff. So I mean, I think we we criticized Mac, you know, a minute ago, but great job by them of keeping those guys invested. And let's talk about probably the best player on the Gator football
2: team in in twenty fifteen. I think possibly there's got to be got to be friend of the program <laughs> Callaway. And we talk about him every tell, week. Yeah, I mean, every single week, right? Every single week. Tell me, just. What 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 are your thoughts on this guy? I mean, he is so good. So good at both punt returning and obviously being a receiver. He's been a huge bonus to this team that has not had a good receiver in years.
1: Like, when I say Antonio Callaway, what are you... What, I mean, what, what are the thoughts come to mind here? Just a big smile on my face, especially with the fact that we have him for at least two more years. Uh, he's been really the bright spot of the season overall, you know, especially since Will Greer going down. I mean, he's saved us many times. He's been... Often the only guy who's been consistent in making plays all year. And that's coming from a true freshman. And he was a pretty big-time time recruit. But he wasn't like five-star all-world. But he's been spectacular from, since day one. I mean, I think uh, the things he does well. I mean, obviously has great athleticism and hands. But he's so technical already as a true freshman that you just don't see out of these guys um, stepping on the field from day one. So that's allowed him to uh, really excel in some of these difficult spots. And then as a punt returner, you know, he doesn't overwhelm you with his athleticism. I mean, don't mistake me, he's quite fast and shifty, but he just knows how to get it done. There's just something special about him. Yeah, he sees
2: the field really, really well. Yes. He, he plays he plays like he's an NFL vet. Yeah. He has an incredible composure to him. He doesn't make mistakes. He plays within himself. And so, if these are the kind of guys we can expect McElwain to recruit and have contribute early on, um, that's going to be a big bonus. Another guy who had sort of a who-is-that-guy moment <laughs> uh, would be C.J. Wharton on the uh, – we'll just call it the Hail Mary pass because I don't know what
1: else to call it. But who who is C.J. Wharton? He's really interesting because coming into the season, the coaching staff talked about four receivers they trusted, Callaway, Demarcus Robinson, um, Brandon Powell, and then C.J. Wharton. So those first three names are very recognizable. We, those guys are on the field almost every play when they're not suspended. Marcus, um, but C.J. Wharton is a guy we saw him in the first couple of games, and then he just fell off the map. I don't even remember the last time he was in the game, maybe for a snap or two. And then they trot him out there, throw the ball up, and he comes down. It makes a great play, one of the better catches of the season. It was a phenomenal job. So I don't know. Maybe that's a turning point for him moving forward. We we're gonna need more guys at that spot to you know contribute. So. That was kind of fun little surprise for Gator fans, I'm sure. And he's more of like a Julian Edelman, Wes Welker slot kind of guy. Slot guy. Yeah.
2: So that's not really his traditional role is no, to go no. to the field and moss somebody. But uh, <laughs> it was, it was a nice moment for the team. And and I guess it would it wouldn't be right of us not to spend at least a second talking about the place kicking. So on one hand, we have our punter Johnny Townsend, who's in the top ten for the punters for for you know average yard per punt, etc guy's probably going to play in the league he's a great punter and on the other side we have Austin Harden who is statistically the worst quarter I mean the worst place kicker uh, in the NCAA this year he's Mm -hmm. 5 of 14 he's had three of his kicks blocked he had one against Alabama blocked because he kicked it about two feet high so we know it's terrible it's weird to have the worst quarterback and then the worst kicker on the same team at the same time but I mean, what, so clearly, I don't even know what to say about it. What do you, what you like? All I want to know is, is we march him out for the field goal, and I'm sitting next to you, and the field goal gets blocked. And like, was there any surprise? I mean, I just expected no. it. How where is it to expect a
1: field goal to get blocked? He's had several in a row blocked now. I think he's just completely lost it. But you know, I think Mac was thinking the other guy can't kick it this far. At least there's a chance Harden will make it. Well, no, actually, there's zero percent chance he's going to make it. As someone said, he's broken, and it feels like Gator fans. I know Gator Nation around the world is like. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Like, why is this guy coming back on the field? You're better off throwing it on like fourth and seventeen than having him kick it. Because I, every time he lines up, I have there's no part of me that thinks he's gonna make it. And so I, I don't know. That's a tough spot to be in. I said it last week, week before. You have no quarterback and no kicker. It's almost impossible to score points. That's a tough spot for Mac to be in. So hopefully we can get those uh, rectified. Yeah, and
2: and for, for me, I just think right back to the, you know, we gave we gave the dentist, who's not even a dentist, by the way. He's he's, he's an undergrad. <laughs> it's fun to call him a dentist. It's super though. great to call him a dentist, but confusing. He's an undergrad and he's pre-dental, which doesn't really mean anything. But whatever, fine. The dentist, I'm still marching the dentist out there. Yeah, he missed sure, an extra point, not? but I'm giving somebody else a shot at it. This kind of goes right back to Max maybe – if you use the definition of insanity as doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result, Max sort of fallen into that with the place kicker in the quarterback position, which, whatever, it's a mind blow. The good news is I do think this year is an anomaly, and so if McElwain's strategic decision making falls within an error in that specific realm, it's probably unlikely to have that rear its head again because... Outside of that, this football team plays with tremendous discipline. They play with professional poise. They stay very balanced emotionally. He got a team that, that I think I would have said had no chance to win this game against Alabama to come on and play very hard. They played with pride the whole game. The defense stayed engaged. That's difficult. So he does all the things you want to do really well. And again, if this is a tiny little sliver of a thing, right. if that's his on. main
1: flaw, then... then it, I. I can forgive that, even right. though it's very frustrating. Then tomorrow. just
2: recruit some better players and, and get rid of this, which is obviously on the horizon. So with that and putting that Alabama game to bed, a game that, again, we could have won. If you're thinking to yourself, oh, wait a minute, James and Allen, the game was close. Recall that we thought that it would be close. We thought that it would it would go into the third quarter and we'd have a chance with regards to the scoreboard. Uh, but obviously, if you can't score you know, one touchdown in two games – if you go back to the FAU game, you know, not overtime, you know it's been I don't know eight or nine quarters, but obviously ugly. Um, what's not ugly is the fact that this episode has sort of become a family episode, so it's it's a good time. Uh, and <laughs> we thought it'd be really cool to get another perspective on the Gators from maybe someone that's a not not a traditional necessarily fan like you and I would be, or someone that's really like invested in the game for years and years and years. And that would, of course, be your lovely wife, who's who's right here with us.
1: So we got a fun little segment here. We thought we'd come at. The end of the season here with a different angle. We are joined in the studio by my wife, actually, Alessia Williams. So Alessia's story, she didn't grow up, you know, following football at all. Uh, she's from Russia, moved to America when she was a kid, but, you know, lived in very R- Russian-centric communities, So football wasn't a big part of, like, her life growing up. Since moving to Gainesville, that's changed a little bit, you know, involved in the university community. And then, of course, beginning to date me and then marry me, her fandom only increased. So, <laughs> uh, she started off pretty rough. Um, her first season having uh, season tickets was the four and eight campaign. But I think this season was probably the first time she really followed the team closely on a week to week basis. So, Alessia, tell us what was it like for you? you know, experiencing that for the first time, really following the team closely for the first time this year?
3: Well, it was difficult not to follow the team living in Gainesville to begin with. I came to the University of Florida not for the Gator football team, but for grad school. But it was just within a year I started following the team because it was all around me, just the culture that we swim in. So it's been really fun getting to know more about the players and how the game works. And Um, I feel like I've become a closer part of the community by following the Gators and Gator football, and that's been really great.
1: Was there a moment for you this year when you kind of realized that it had made a real impact on you, that you were a real fan?
3: Oh, gosh. I'd probably say um, our second or third game when we played Kentucky, when it was really close, Um, just having all the emotional highs and lows and screaming at the TV as we were watching the game that I was like, oh gosh, I really care about this team.
1: Yeah. I remember you saying something about why am I so nervous (laughs) and freaking out a little bit.
3: Yeah,
2: Alessia, what was your best moment this year as a Gator fan? Was there a time when you just thought this was a high, this was exciting. It was fun.
3: Tennessee game, hands down. The last few seconds there, that was Unbelievable.
2: Is that an experience that you could relate to something else that you've had before? I mean, it's it's sort of a unique American cultural thing to watch a football game like that. Is there something you'd had in a stadium or any sort of...
3: No, I'd been to other stadium games, watching soccer and things like that, but football is so different. And then I've been to a couple NFL games, but college football is also different, and the swamp is just electric. There's nothing like being in the swamp, so... You know, beating a rival the last couple minutes—absolutely nothing like it.
2: Is there any way that you could describe the game to your family that doesn't watch football? They say, "Hey, what was it like to be the Tennessee game?" How, could you just say it's—it's it's not something I can even tell you. It's that. Different,
3: yeah, there are few words to describe it. So it was fun having my brother out here a couple weeks ago. Unfortunately, it was to the FSU game, but I just wanted him to experience the swamp because it's so hard to talk about what it's like there. Yeah, no words.
1: So, are there any kind of feelings or I don't know, new frustrations you picked up amongst our rivalry games or something like that? Any new hatreds?
3: I think I have a healthy hatred for FSU, um, definitely, um, if hatred can be healthy, of course. Um, I don't mind Tennessee quite as much. I mean, I don't don't hate them as much as some people do, Um, but definitely Tennessee. I'm I'm sorry, definitely FSU. um, Just
1: (laughs) excellent. Uh, What about your understanding of the game? What changed about that?
3: I would say I graduated from, like, elementary school to at least high school level. Um, I've always, I'm for a long time, understood the basics of the game, but now I understand a lot of the nuances. Everything from coaching styles and coordinators to some players and plays and positions, the game's much more interesting to me. It's not just who has the ball and things like that. It's become almost like an intellectual experience in some ways, so it's experiential being at the swamp and watching it with friends, so part of that culture, but it's also very um, mental as you think about plays. It's kind of like a chess match, so the more I understand about football, the more I actually enjoy it.
2: That's very very well said, and this is just something that makes me curious. So I know that you're going to talk about the game with Alan and I and others, but when you're going about your daily week and you do a lot of, a lot of your daily week involves with women, just women in sure. general, are there times that you're talking football? Does that happen?
3: It does. Um, yeah. It's funny. Just at work, around the community, grocery shopping, whatever else. Maybe it's because we live in Gainesville and so many things revolve around UF and the Gators, but it certainly comes up at the gym. Were you at the game? What did you think? Um Women definitely have varying understandings and interests in the game, but conversations around about the football games definitely come up.
1: Okay, last question here. What are your overall feelings about the Gators like moving forward? Are you excited, confident, worried? How do you feel?
3: I'm excited. I'm pretty positive because um, Coach Mack just has been great, and I think it's going to be a great start for him here at UF. And then we have some, you know, great potential recruits for next, next year. Um, I'm a little nervous about the quarterback situation, but overall I'm excited because it seems like we're finally trending in an upward motion here. So it's fun to be here at Gainesville during this time.
1: All right. Well, thanks for giving us a few of your thoughts. Yeah. Um,
3: appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Since we don't have an upcoming game this week, although Michigan awaits us in the Citrus Bowl, and we'll get some early thoughts on that in a little bit. We figure we run down the big stories that are that are going on right now in college football, Heisman, coaching hires, bowl games, our own bowl game, and then talk a little bit at the end about our schedule as we enter into the the Christmas and holiday season and the new year and that sort of thing. So Alan, let's start off the top with what's coming the most quickly, which is the Heisman uh, race. It's one of the closest races we've had in a long long time. a lot of worthy candidates. Run us through the list and tell me who you think is going to win and then maybe who you think should win.
1: Okay. Well, we just saw one of the candidates up close and personal, Derek Henry, running back Alabama, Christian McCaffrey, running back for Stanford, Deshaun Watson, quarterback for Clemson, Baker Mayfield, Mayfield, quarterback Oklahoma, and then, of course, Dalvin Cook from FSU. Uh, It's Like I said, it's going to be really tight, I think think Derek Henry will win that seems to be I don't know it's so close I don't know if there is a presumptive that's my pick for I think who will win the guy I think should win is Christian McCaffrey I love this guy if you watch a Stanford game and I've weirdly watched a lot of Stanford this year because they're on late at night he's a dynamo they use him on almost every single play they run the ball to him. They throw to him. He does kick returns and punt returns. He's almost that entire offense, and he's incredible. Ton of speed, really shifty, will still run between the tackles. Love it. Sometimes I worry they're going to break him in half how many times they use him because he's not Derrick Henry size, but I love his game. I think he's spectacular. What
2: about you? Yeah, that's a really that's a really fun, fun guy. <laughs> McCaffrey is, is great to watch. Like Alan said, if you haven't watched him, you'll want to watch him in the bowl game. He's responsible for something ridiculous like 80-some-odd percent of their offensive plays. He
1: broke Barry Sanders' like all-purpose yards record from like 1988. Which
2: is insane. Yeah. I mean, Barry Sanders put up ridiculous numbers. So he, he's kind of flying under the radar because he's, he's a white guy who plays for Stanford, and you can lose a guy like that. And he returns kicks, which everyone says, oh, well, that's just cheap. He's inflating his stats. But super great, great talent. For me right now, a lot of people talk about Deshaun Watson and – I think Deshaun Watson is more of a runner than he is a passer. I think his numbers are kind of nice. They're a little inflated. Um, I think there could be a storyline where they want him to win because he plays for Clemson. And Heisman voters, I think, are influenced by that kind of thing. Whereas what Henry has going against him is he plays for Alabama, which is a prolific ground-and-pound team with a bunch of offensive linemen, which I don't care what anyone says that works against guys in moments like these. With that being said, it's really hard to deny Henry's performances in the stretch of games that Bama had that define their season. He put that team on his back and had Herschel Walker-like performances in the SEC. Really hard for me to say that he's not, he's not worthy of winning it with that kind of gauntlet that he did. I think he will win it. I probably think he should win it. Um... But I like I like your thought on McCaffrey. He's been he's been fun to watch. And for all the Florida State fans out there, for Delvin Cook, the guy's a great running back. He was also really responsible for a lot of what Florida State did. Uh, it still kind of bothers me that he squeaked out a bunch of garbage yards against yes. us. But but a great running back nonetheless, and all those guys are great. But I, I think probably comes down to Henry or Watson realistically. Maybe McCaffrey could be a dark horse. I don't know. Two losses always hurt you. So it should be a fun ceremony on Saturday.
1: Yeah, another big storyline this offseason is the coaching carousel. A ton of openings. We actually, a few weeks ago, graded what we thought were like the best openings. Uh, So let's now talk about these hires. A lot of people have made hires already. So let me ask you, let's go through a couple of these things and a few options. What was your favorite hire so far?
2: My favorite hire, one that surprised me really, was Justin Fuente's of Memphis going to Virginia. I think that that is the best hire. Virginia Tech, sorry, that's the best hire that anyone made. I mean, he was—he's young. He's like thirty-nine. Uh, Memphis was five and thirty-one when he took them over. In the past two years, this year they won nine games. Last year they won ten games. They were ranked in the top twenty-five. Uh, that is an incredible turnaround, and he was on a lot of people's wish lists. And so he goes to Virginia Tech, a program that I had talked to you about thinking, you know, I think when Beamer goes, that program maybe just kind of goes out of pasture. Not really sexy, not in a great town, kind of just totally created by Beamer. So that is an amazing hire for Virginia Tech. I love that hire. I think they are going to be good now for as long as he will be there. And I'm not sure why that was the job that appealed to him. Similar recruiting bases to Memphis, I get that, but... I think he could have really gone a lot of different places, but good for Virginia Tech. That seems like a great hire. How about
1: yours? Yeah, I love that hire. I think it's a home run. I agree with everything you said about I was surprised that he took it. I think it's a perfect spot for them. He gets to keep Bud Foster, their longtime defensive coordinator, so just slam dunk there. So that would be my number one, but if I had to choose another one, I would say UCF hiring Scott Frost. So Scott Frost, longtime offensive coordinator and on the offensive staff at Oregon. And what he said he's going to do is take that Oregon offense and put it at UCF. I mean, that's going to be like an incredible little experiment to try to take all the Florida athletes and put them in that kind of system and try to turn them into Oregon East. So I, that's really intriguing to me. And if he can pull that off, they're going to be really dangerous. Yeah, I
2: really like that hire because it is the intrigue factor is so high. We talked about a dark horse scenario of Chip Kelly going to Miami and like James's ultimate nightmare scenario. Yes. Primarily because of that. No one has really tried, or we saw what Urban did with this system.
1: No um, one's taken that organ system and replicated it. Mean, not have like all Oregon, of, uh, yep. Art Bryles clones and mm-hmm. Mike Leach clones, but mm-hmm. no one's gone from that organ stuff. And this is a really interesting spot. Not a Power Five job, which mm-hmm. most people thought he would take, but mm-hmm. maybe even. A better than like a low-end Power 5 job to take UCF. Well, they, a lot of people call UCF the sleeping giant. They're
2: one of the largest schools in the country. They're obviously right in Florida. They're in a very desirable place in Orlando. They have a lot of resources. They're committed to winning. And this seems like a good strategic move primarily because the rest of the schools in the state are pro-style. With, with Rick, a guy we're going to talk about now in Miami, Jimbo at Florida State, now McElwain here at Florida. Those those three schools are pro style. So in a lot of ways, he won't even be competing necessarily with the same guys. So really wise hire, I think, by UCF. Uh, who knows if it'll work out. But strategically, I think they're thinking the right things when they're making a hire like that. Let's talk about the flip side of the coin. Give me, give me the worst. Maybe just the worst hire or the one
1: that you're just thinking, yeah, I don't really love that hire. There's a bunch. Um <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, Southern Cal and keeping Clay Helton. I felt like this was a really uninspiring move by them. I guess they were one over by the way he handled the whole transition, but most people view Southern Cal as a top five, certainly a top 10 job. And it seemed like their coaching search was like zero. Like, oh, let's just keep this guy. Um, Maybe he will do great. I'm, I think he's probably a pretty good coach. Um, you know, Bill Carr last week talked about you know him. He really liked the hire. But for me, it was like, you know what? Why make that hire then? You could have had Clay Helton two months from now. He's still going to take that job. No one else is coming in to, like, steal him away. So that I thought that was, you know, pretty
2: weak. What about you? That does seem like a head scratcher really. The rumors were were hot that Nick Saban was going to leave for USC because they were going to quote, back the truck up and pay hundreds of millions of dollars to get him. And then you kind of quietly and very quickly name Clay Hilton, to which the rest of the country says, what? (laughs) And doesn't mean he couldn't be great. But again, yeah, you're USC. You're supposed to be one of the top three programs, et cetera, et cetera. And just sort of what is the response? So I don't know how I'd feel if I was a USC fan. I also don't know how I would feel if I was a South Carolina fan. We just weird. Like one half of every Gator fan, I think, says, "Well, he'll have a great defense. Like they could be good." But Will Muschamp to South Carolina today announcing he's hiring Kurt Roper as his offensive coordinator. Uh, Is this a bad hire? I mean, what what is this?
1: This feels like an incredibly bad hire. I, I like Will Muschamp, the guy. I like him as a defensive coordinator a lot. Um, I think he would have been in his best interest to take a smaller job, ultimately. But that's hard. Probably it's hard to go from Florida down to like a lower tier head coaching job. Uh, this feels like a desperate move. I don't know where this is coming from. I mean, I feel like that's great. You know what? I feel like they're a very known commodity now. They're going to be really solid on defense and pretty crappy on offense. And as long as we can be decent on offense, we're going to beat them every year. That's how I feel going to that. And I could be wrong, but that's that's the feeling I have. So I'm like, oh, from a, this is a good way to judge it. How did the other team's fan bases feel about the hire? I feel great about them hiring him. So that's probably not good news for them.
2: Yeah, and the South Carolina fans, I think the reaction is not even mixed. It's just been sort of like, what? <laughs> did, I mean, people people around the SEC, they saw what must champ. But there's this sort of myth that if you're really good on one side of the ball, all you have to do is get another guy on the other side of the ball and you'll win.
1: That's proven to be not true, I think is
2: such foolish thinking. But people fall into it all the time. Like, okay, well, great. Will Muschamp's a top 10 defensive guy every single year. All he has to do is hire an offensive coordinator and he'll win. And that's just really devaluing what a head coach has to do. And you're kind of simplifying the actual process of not only recruiting, but developing players, running an organization, hiring good assistants, teaching your assistants. And this is a guy in Will Muschamp who who named Chris Leak, his wide receivers coach, a guy who doesn't even want to coach anymore. You know, we had him on the program this year. Great guy, not coaching now, never played receiver, kind of just dabbled in it and never even played receiver. And this is who Muschamp in the year that he's fighting for his job, anoints for the receiver's job. So, I don't know how in, in 12 months with his head spinning the way that it was that he can all of a sudden think he's had time to reflect and learn and change. It seems like what you said, this reach, it's a big name. It's a guy that can recruit really well. It's a guy that has ties in the SEC, but it, it, it you know it's weird. And it's the second Florida coach they've hired in a row. So I guess South Carolina now is our minor league franchise. I mean, I, I, guess I don't so. know. Funky stuff. So what about the most surprising hire? Was there one that you saw out
1: there and said, oh, this is a really big surprise? Maybe good or bad, but just a surprise. Well, I'm going to tie these two together and say it's not really surprising, but Kirby Smart to Georgia and then Tom Herman staying at Houston. You know what? Here's again. I'm kind of pretty good with them hiring Kirby Smart. You know, after the experience of watching Will Muschamp, you know, a Nick Saban disciple, defense guy, coming in, taking his first time as a head coaching, you know, job. You know, it doesn't really scare me. Tom Herman terrifies me. The old Ohio State offensive coordinator, first year at Houston, did a fantastic job. I thought he was going to be on the top of everybody's list, and he ended up staying at Houston. I don't really know what went on with that, but but I'm really surprised he's still at Houston, that he didn't get one of these bigger jobs. Maybe because people did weird things like USC or Georgia and South Carolina. Everyone did weird stuff that he's still there, but I'm really glad he's not in SEC East. Yeah, for me, I'll select the coach with the best name, Bronco
2: Mendenhall. So he's BYU's head coach. A lot of people out in the East don't really know who this guy is. All he did in the past 11 years at BYU was take them to 11 straight bowl games. He went 99-42. and 42. Uh, He was one of only 11 programs to make it to 11 straight bowl games. And he, in a, I think a very surprising move, leaves BYU for Virginia, a school that's gone to – has had one winning record – in the past six years, one winning record. So Broncos is pretty well thought of as a head coach. And that's a surprise. It's a con- just a surprise to me. I think it's a great surprise for Virginia. Look, if you're Virginia, you're getting a guy that built a program at BYU and won every single year, was uber consistent, is an excitable, energetic guy. I think that's a huge hire for them. I think he'll be successful. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great hire for them. But it definitely surprised me when you see that name there. Uh, some other some other notables that we definitely need to mention. Mark Rick at Miami. Thoughts on that? Yeah, um,
1: seems like a weird fit in some sense because I was thinking, okay, Miami, you've gone like a very conservative route and tried to like clean up the image a little bit. And no one's cleaner than Mark Rick. So uh, I thought they should have leaned into the curve a little bit of their kind of rebel kind of image of their program. But Mark Rick is a graduate of Miami. He's obviously super successful. And I think immediately Miami becomes like a real power in that division in the ACC. So, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about it. What about you? Yeah, I think you described it accurately. Miami,
2: and I grew up in Coral Gables, so I, I was a huge Hurricane fan for a time in my life. When I was very young, you can forgive me. But... It does feel like a mismatch culture-wise. They've had Randy Shan and then Al Golden. These are kind of like boring guys that clean the program up. And then you get Mark Rick, who's like the quintessential boring guy. The flip side of the coin is the guy's a winner. He's a historic winner. I mean, he's not a championship winner, but the definition of winner being that he's going to win nine or 10 games every single year. He's going to build a very consistent program. There's very few guys that are at Mark Rick's level. In fact, he's like second, I think, in the past 15 or 20 years on win percentage, overall win percentage of any active coach right now. So uber successful guy, he just doesn't have for whatever reason the ability to win the big game maybe this puts a chip on Rick's shoulder this could reignite him in a way that maybe he examines some of the weaknesses he has Uh, but I want to say that I like the hire with a cautiously optimistic remark because if Miami can become relevant on an annual basis, the talent in South Florida is immense and Rick is a great recruiter so maybe he can develop enough talent that that's just going to wind up sort of walking into a scenario that, that corrects his issues. I don't know. I kind of like it, although it does feel like a culture mismatch. Anyone else out there in the coaching landscape that's worth mentioning? There are certainly more hires than just these
1: guys. Right. Well, I just thought Iowa State hiring Toledo's coach, Matt Campbell, thought he was going to get a really big job. And he went to Iowa State really early on. So huge home run for them. We'll see if he can make anything out of that mess in Ames Iowa. What about you? Yeah, he's only
2: thirty six years old too. Yeah. So a lot of lot of coaching velocity this year. And it's surprising. I guess my, my one note on the thing to mention is that how many of these guys got their jobs so early. Yeah. You know, fun fact is that when we fired Ron Zook, Florida did, we were really the first school to fire a coach mid year. Um, you know, I know when Notre Dame fired Town Willingham, it was a big deal because they fired him before his contract and that was sort of like a non Notre Dame thing. But we sort of started a huge trend in college football where, one, it's okay to fire your coach early, and then, two, it's okay to hire these guys, like rapid fire, two to three weeks or a month before they normally
1: would have been hired. So there's been a massive progression in how quickly these things move. And I want to say one last thing about the Georgia job. You know, I kind of already bashed Kirby Smart, but I think he's got some big shoes to fill. So if you look at Mark Rick's winning percentage, if Kirby Smart overachieves in win percentage, he still might not match Rick. Now, I think Georgia fans would say, "Well, he's got to win the right games." I think that's probably true. But he's got a tall like order to fill, and I think the probability is that Georgia regresses, you know, maybe they they're tougher against us in particular, and maybe that would excite Georgia fans, but I don't love that. It's not like a big swing by them by any means.
2: Yeah, Kirby was always the guy that was rumored to get that job. So I guess you just got to give him a shot. I think before the Will Muschamp experiment, people would have been all over this hire as a phenomenal hire. But Will Muschamp really made a lot of people question hiring an unproven guy. At that level at of that a job. At that level of a job. And like you said, uh, in a way, George is doing something logical because they're getting rid of a guy that can't win championships. But the flip side of that coin is you can become Nebraska very, very quickly. And Nebraska can tell you all about what it's like to be mediocre for the past 14 years because they got rid of a guy who won 10 games every single year. So, you know, tough situation there. Let's, let's switch our focus now to the bowl games. So there's a million bowl games. There's just, you know, 40 of them, I think, which is great. You know, uh, I am generally not a huge fan of bowl games because I, I fall into the camp that they're really great for practices, for programs, but the players themselves really don't care that often and in fact if you know a former player go ahead and call them up this week and ask him and say hey tell me what it was like when you played in the you know com bowl or pick whatever you want were you motivated were you excited about it and most of the time the response will be no I was trying to stay healthy I was going to the NFL I was getting the free gifts and the meals and doing the tours it's not a lot of investment and especially for the teams that were supposed to be good and regressed for them really a struggle So with that, you can kind of look at the bowl list and say, okay, there's some that I think have motivation. There's some that I don't. So let's kind of pick out, aside from the very obvious ones, like the Cotton Bowl and the Orange Bowl, let's kind of pick out three. Three games that you looked at and you said, huh, that's a good one. With one of those three being an early matchup. Those are tougher to pick, obviously. That kind of just catches your
1: eye. Okay, I'll go first here. One I'm interested in is, I've already mentioned them, Tom Herman's Houston Cougars versus the team out west, Florida State. I would love to see this offense just put some points on them and embarrass them. <laughs> that's probably what I'm intrigued about this game. Cause I think they're going to be motivated to play in that game. And I don't know if FSU will. So that's going to be always an interesting, like a up and coming program versus an established one. Yeah. That's the great, that's like the quintessential
2: the motivation game. And the only Trump card there is Dalvin Cook's motivation because running backs, if he gets the ball 30 times could take that game over. But uh, uh, interesting game without doubt for me, Uh, The first one that I'll list off, and this is maybe a snooze fest to others, is the Stanford-Iowa game. And that game actually happens in the Rose Bowl, and it happens after after the first semifinal playoff games. And the reason that's important to me is I actually think the Stanford and Iowa matchup in the Rose Bowl will be very telling, or would have been very telling, for the Bama-Michigan State matchup. Because I just don't really know what Michigan State's like. Are they good? Are they great? I don't know. I think the Stanford-Iowa game would tell me that because Stanford's a really good power team. that had a really good year. I kind of know what they're like. Iowa's also a huge question mark, although they almost beat Michigan State. Unfortunately, it happens the day after. So I think the Bama-Michigan State game will give us insight into that game. But I want to watch it. It's Scott McCaffrey. Stanford's fun to watch. Iowa is not fun to watch, but they're just kind of intriguing because they're 12-1. and So that one is for me. I'll pick an early one now this one will make those of you laugh uh that know how much i love jeff driscoll (laughs) i'm gonna take the jeff driscoll bowl louisiana tech versus arkansas state driscoll had a really solid year this year i never thought i would say this i said it earlier in the podcast i'll say it again i wish driscoll was still here at uf for this year backing up will greer we probably would have won some more games um but he had a nice year statistically there and so good for jeff he's a guy that i certainly dogged during his years here good guy though yeah good guy always a really nice guy Uh, dogged him only for his play, never as a person. And so it will be interesting to watch him close out a tumultuous college career that did not live up to the hype, but certainly a nice ending game to him. And now some NFL teams are talking about bringing him on as a free agent, as a developmental kind of guy, because he does have a big frame and a strong arm. So I'll watch that one with interest. How about an early game for you?
1: Yeah, these are kind of fun. They're not not a lot of great matchups. So I'm going to pick Miami and Washington State purely for – the excess of the fan bases visiting the Sun Bowl in El Paso. Uh, there's many a story about teams showing up a little hungover the next day after it's been out partying the night before. And, uh, you know, apparently the Washington State fans are crazy. So who knows what they're going to show up like the next day. Uh, I don't know, just a fun circus down there in El Paso <laughs> it should be good I had a friend who's a, a big
2: Cougs fan went to Washington State and he is crazy so that there you go. that matches up well uh my last my last pick and this is kind of a fun one maybe in reverse I'm picking these defensive games Northwestern Tennessee and I think I try to pick the bowl games that have like a maybe what is going on with these programs Northwestern had 10 and 2 a very quiet 10 and 2 year mm-hmm. Tennessee 8 and 4 seems to be on the upswing finish the year really strong. I think they'll be very motivated to play this game and measure themselves against Northwestern, a very good defense. Uh, Tennessee will have a lot of momentum going into next year if they win this bowl game. And I do not think bowl games have any correlation to even recruiting or the next season, but the media loves it. And so media loves to just ride the momentum train that teams have from bowl games. And that's what they would get is they would get some more positive press. So I'm going to, I'm going to watch that one with some
1: interest. Yeah. The Pat Dooley of the Gainesville Sun likes to call Tennessee, the Kardashians, just a lot of flash and hype. And then when they have to show up, they can't do it. Uh, So I think they're going to get some, they're going to win that game and get some early buzz and then probably fall flat again. Uh, At least I hope Uh, I like this game for pure offense. It's UNC Baylor, especially if Baylor can get one of their quarterbacks healthy. It's amazing. They almost won that game with, playing a wide receiver quarterback, UNC can score points as well. So that should be a fun shootout. No no defense being played in that game, which I like in bowl season. No, absolutely none. So lastly, there's our bowl
2: game. Michigan, the fighting Jim Harbaugh's, the guy that I wanted as our coach. A credible turnaround from him. Yeah. I think vastly exceeding expectations even in year one up there. Pit it up against McElwain, vastly exceeding expectations down here. We, of course, have the unfortunate scenario of not playing with a full deck of cards. Harbaugh does have a full deck of cards. We're not going to spend a ton of time breaking this down. We'll do a now, big
1: preview later on.
2: But just initial, you
1: saw the matchup in the Citrus Bowl in Orlando. First thoughts were oof, gonna be tough to score points again. So this is the, you know, kind of the coach of the year ball. Both these guys did a big turnaround in their first year. Michigan has played really great at defense on times at times, so I I think we're going to struggle to score as per usual.
2: Yeah, same thing, and you could have marched any team out there and I'd be like, oof, we're going (laughs) to have a hard time scoring, but especially Michigan, I think Harbaugh will be highly motivated to win this game because he really wants to recruit the state of Florida. So he will use this as an opportunity to build his reputation, and it will come at our expense, uh, unfortunately. Right now, Michigan is only a four-point favorite, So if you're looking to bet, four-point favorite. (laughs) Maybe we get a quarterback change that swings that one way or the other. But right now, only a measly four-point favorite. So with that, let's talk a little bit about our future schedule. Obviously, we've come to you every single Monday uh, around 7 or 8 o'clock. That will change as we head now into the the Christmas and holiday season. Uh, Our schedule will be as follows. After this program, the next one will be Sunday the 27th, and that will be a... Final Four College Football Playoff Preview, as well as our game against Michigan Preview in depth. We'll have our guests like normal on that episode. And then from there, we'll begin actually a series of several episodes. January 4th, we'll come back. We'll talk about our game. We'll talk about the uh, the games that finished in the Final Four of the playoffs. Then we'll be on January 25th with a recruiting preview and episode. That'll be about eight days before signing day, eight to ten days before signing day. Then we'll be back on February 4th which is the day after signing day to kind of recap all of the events of what's going on in the recruiting season. And then lastly, we'll be on in April after the spring game. And that will sort of conclude, if you will, our first full season of podcasting here on the Gator nation football podcast.
1: So yeah, we'll be, you know, kind of in and out hitting the big spots like recruiting day and spring, you know, some, what are the big storylines headed in the summer and some of our overall thoughts. So uh, just, You know, pay attention to uh, Facebook and your RSS feeds. You'll get, you know, a few in there between now and the summer. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to recording around some of those big events. And then as a last note, right now at this moment, Jacob
2: Eason is considered a lean to Florida. So last week on the show. Big five-star quarterback. Yeah, kind of humorously. uh, We had mentioned during Austin's recruiting roundup that hey, we have no shot at Jacob Eason. And like literally the minute we posted the podcast online, big news, Jacob Eason came for an official visit last week. This would be huge news for us to land this guy. He would be an early enrollee. We don't know, we'll find out. Um, Regardless, wanted to update that situation. So I know a lot of you are probably thinking, hey, wait, you know, what happened with Eason? This is what I heard. So right now it looks favorable. Seems to be down between us and Georgia with a dark horse of Miami and Mark Richt there,
1: but in the recruiting world, you never know. It's why, that's why we don't talk about it often. <laughs> yes. But at least
2: you know now that Easton is in fact interested in Florida. He is not off the radar. Uh, McElwain will also be spending this week with our favorite kicker, uh, <laughs> maybe taking more Twitter photos, attempting to attempting anything he can do to get this guy in the program. So with that, we've come to the conclusion of really this season if you want to look at it this way, now we entered the second season of college football. So the first season is over. We've had an absolute blast doing it. I want to thank all of you guys for listening, for sharing the show with your friends. Um, you know, we're well over 10,000 listeners now a week, which is amazing. It certainly exceeded our expectations. And we look forward to bringing you more content as we head into the, you know, quote, second season. So we will see you again on December 27th. Have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy everybody. Hanukkah, happy holidays, all that good stuff. And we'll see you on the flip side.